Well, good morning. We working? Oh, we're working. Here we go. <clears throat> I love Duke and the rest of the worship team, but uh, I would follow Hillsong any day of the week. Duke as well. Uh, this morning, we get to talk about evangelism, and uh, it's easy when we see that, right? You follow Louis, Gil- uh, Louis Giglio, you follow Hillsong, you follow these people who get your heart in the right spot where it needs to be, but now if we say, all right, well, let's break and go home and just choose one of your neighbors who you know does not know Christ and just pour into them today. Uh, I don't know about you, but I, I cry a little bit inside like baby Emery. Um, and I hate that that's the case. And so Brian was gracious enough, uh, coincidentally, to give me this sermon several weeks back on evangelism uh, because I think God knew, if uh, Brian didn't know, uh, that this was an area that um, I don't think that any of us could say that we do well, or at least at minimum, we don't do as much as we could be doing given what we just saw about this guy that we serve, right? Um, so, evangelism, uh, a million different ways you can preach this sermon, a million different areas of focus. My focus for this morning and my goal for you is to walk out of here encouraged. Uh, by what God has done for us, the system that he has designed by which we communicate him to the outside world, and uh, not feel guilty, maybe a little bit of conviction, not guilt, and uh, just be encouraged and want to get out there and get after it. So, but before we get into the text, which by the way is going to be Acts 11, if you want to turn there in advance, we'll be there in just a few minutes, but I want to zoom out in a similar way that Giglio did there to show you just the magnitude of the earth in relation to the rest of the galaxy. Um, Let's look at evangelism in context of the rest of why we were created. And so I'm going to come back uh, to John 15, which if you suffered through my last sermon, uh, thank you, a couple months back. Uh, This is the sermon that if I only get one sermon to preach for the rest of my life in one topic, it will always be this topic. Because for me, this is the true north on the compass, right? Like you get lost, life gets crazy, you're just asking the question of why am I here again? What's going on? What's the purpose again? John 15. And so I cannot hear this sermon enough. And so I'm not going to preach the whole sermon to you, but I am going to give you the highlights real quick to remind us of what is the purpose And then answer the question, within that context, where does evangelism fall? So a couple days ago, coincidentally, uh, an article came out by Business Insider. And so I got an alert on LinkedIn or somewhere. And uh, an article came out about the 25 companies with the happiest employees. And so clicked on it. um, As I was reading down the list of all the employers... And then the, you know, their various employees who are given basically feedback as to what they liked about the companies. There's one common theme or common denominator that came out, and a lot of it had to do with purpose. So, hey, I truly believe in the mission of this company. I truly believe in the impact that we're having on our customers, right? And that, that makes sense. Don't all of us strive for that? Don't all of us want for our lives to mean something? I think the worst thing that could happen is, is like Piper uh, entitled his book, don't waste your life. The worst thing that can happen is I get to the end and, man, I was a, a, a great 
worker. I made a ton of money. I uh, provided for my family, and we consumed every bit of it. And we never helped anybody else and had nothing to do with our neighbors. And they saw us drive these great cars and live in this great house. And we seemed very happy. We never got to know them. And we died. And and that's it. Uh, Life is so much more, which is why you see uh, uh, an example of this in an article such as this. So how about you? Just a personal question. Don't raise your hand or answer out loud. But... um, if someone were to ask you, what is your purpose? Hey, uh, what are we doing? What do you think the answer is to, to what we're doing here? I'm searching. What, why do you do what you do? Why do you work the job that you work? Why do you live in the house that you live in? What, what's your purpose? That's a question that I think we need to chew on more than we do. Well, the benefit of Scripture, one of the eight billion, is that Scripture doesn't leave us hanging, and it gives us an answer. And so, summary real quick of John 15. Uh, Before we get to John 15, actually, fly back to Isaiah, uh, where God says uh, that He has created us to glorify Him. He's created us for His glory. So that then begs the question, well, how do I glorify Him? What does that mean exactly? So if you guys uh, were here, you may remember, uh, again, I'm a very linear person, so I'm going to treat it like a typewriter. There's five steps, right? So that question of how is it that we glorify God is answered in John 15. And number one, it says, before we dive into the answer, know that you are to abide in me, step one, like a branch abides in a vine or a tree trunk. Right? If you lop that thing off, it's going to fall on the ground and dry up and die. It cannot bear fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing, John 15 says. Abide in me, for apart from me, you can do nothing. So step one, abide in me. Great. How do we do that exactly? Step two, he says again there in John 15, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in me. You will abide in my love. All right. I don't know about you guys, but in high school, I read very little of the books assigned to me. I went straight to the cliff notes. And uh, so like the Pharisees in the Gospels asking Jesus, can you kind of give me the cliff notes version of uh, like, is there like one commandment that I can you know, really focus on and nail the others? And Jesus says, love God with every ounce of your being. Love him with uh, all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And likewise, love your neighbor as yourself. All the other commandments hinge upon those two. Right? So you abide in him. How? Step one. Step two, keep his commandments. All right, well, what commandments? Step three, love God with everything that you have and love your neighbor as yourself. You do those two things, you'll nail every other commandment. All right, so by keeping his commandments, that's how we abide in him. But the Bible doesn't stop there, and it gives us the results of what happens by doing so. Step four, uh, we produce fruit. The Bible says by keeping uh, his commandments and abiding in him, then you will produce fruit. Specifically, the Bible then goes further and talks about love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Imagine if your life was characterized by those things. I think that would answer some of the purpose questions of why am I here? Why are you asking that question? Why? Because you want your life to mean something. Well, if you get to the end of your life and it means something, what, does, what emotion does that elicit? It elicits a feeling of satisfaction, of joy, of peace. You're not anxious or regretful, right? So all of those are answered in the fruits of the Spirit. How do you get those fruits? You abide by keeping His commandments, loving Him and loving others. You produce fruit. And then the last step is, in terms of results, by doing all of those things, it says, 
When you produce fruits that God is glorified, think back to Isaiah, why were we created? To glorify him. So God is glorified, and then Jesus makes this uh, amazing statement when he says, I tell you these things so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. What a beautiful system, a five-step system of how to abide in him with the end result being fulfilling our creative purpose, glorifying God, us being filled to the brim with everything we could ask for, all the character traits of the fruits of the Spirit. That's the life that I want to live. So now we ask the question, okay, well, in light of that, where does evangelism fall? Because I used to make the, mis- the, uh, the mistake, and I felt guilty all the time that, okay, we were only created to evangelize. We were only created to make disciples. But yet I have to go to work in a secular job, and it was hard for me to, okay, so am I only here to uh, witness to my uh, coworkers? Well, if that's the case, what if you are in like an isolated chamber where you don't talk to anybody every day? So how do you reconcile those things? There is some truth to that, and certainly you are in your job to reflect Christ, but evangelism isn't the only aspect of why we were created. So that's what I love about this system, but within this system of loving God and loving others that leads to God's glory and our satisfaction, evangelism does fall within it. And here's how. Think about this. What is the most loving thing that we can do to our neighbor? So let's say, for example, um, you come from a ton of money, and you just have $100 million sitting in the bank. And so you move in next door, and you realize that your neighbor, uh, as you get to know him, he's fallen on hard times. He's not a Christian, uh, but he just is under this a massive amount of debt, trying to figure out how to get out from under it. And he feels like, if I could eradicate this debt, then I would be good to go. So you pay the bill. Let's say it's 150 k or whatever the number is. It doesn't matter. You pay off everything. House, cars, student loans, credit card debt, anything he owes, right? At best, this person is not going to go back into debt, which, but at best, he's not going to go back into debt and he's going to live a life that um, is stress-free as it pertains to money. But how long as life in comparison to eternity? And how unloving are we by not introducing him to the person who paid his sin debt that would impact his eternity? See? So the main idea of the sermon is this here. There is no single greater way for us to love our neighbor and thereby glorify God and fulfill our created purpose than by helping that neighbor become a disciple of Christ. That's where evangelism fits in. It's not the only way we love our neighbor, but it is a massive component of how we love our neighbor. And in fact, there is no greater way to love our neighbor than to help them discover who Christ is and why they were created in in the John 15 system that Jesus so uh, lovingly gives us. Francis Chan tells this funny story. So Francis Chan, for any of you who don't know, uh, he wrote Crazy Love. If you read one book this year, um, read Crazy Love. It, it will change you. Uh, he is a phenomenal pastor, preacher, author, etc. out in Simi Valley, California. I want to say it was about 20 years ago, he started this church just out of his living room, about five people. And as it was uh, kind of getting off of the ground, he was exploring other big churches and just looking for best practices in the area. So he went to this uh, mega church in the California area, 
went to this Christmas program, and it was just this massive production. And after the program was over, he was speaking with the pastor, and the pastor was telling him about all that went into creating this program and putting it on. So he said all of these people uh, who were part of the congregation who participated in the program, they invested hours, like 12 to 14 hours every week over the course of months to make this program happen. And that didn't even touch how much money went into all of the props and all the other various things, right? So it was expensive, it was time intensive, but they pulled it off and they thought it was a, a, a success. So Francis Chan said, yeah, I agree with you. It was a great program. He said, but I I got to ask, and no offense, but I've got to ask, you know, I'm just thinking through the numbers here of how many hours were invested over the course of the past few months, and then how much money was invested. Like, what if those same people had invested that amount of time into reaching their neighbors and inviting them over to dinner and looking for avenues to bring up spiritual conversations, getting to know them, figuring out what the hurdles are that are preventing them from knowing their Creator? And then, oh, by the way, it wouldn't have cost you anything in order to do that, right? And the pastor goes, no, I, I completely get it. But here's the problem. The people aren't willing to do that. So we had to kind of think of a different idea. And Chan says, uh, yeah, you know what? My response was, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I understand that. And so now a couple years later, well, excuse me, a couple years ago, almost 20 years later, he was preaching a sermon and used this illustration. And he said, now you know what my response to that is? No, that is stupid. Like, what do you mean they're not willing to do it? We, we don't get to change the system that God created to advance his gospel just because we're afraid to do it, or we don't want to be socially awkward, or we don't want to offend people, or we don't want to bring up a polarizing topic. Like, that is not for us to change. So because you're afraid to knock on your neighbor's door instead you dress up like a sheep and then invite your neighbor to come see you sing about, like, look, Christmas programs have their place, but the point is we don't get to change the system. So, what is the system? In a nutshell, the system is that God uses the ordinary to accomplish the extraordinary. And here again, praise God that he doesn't leave that question unanswered, but gives us uh, example after example after example throughout Scripture, one of which, Acts 11. So, Acts 11, we're going to read uh, about these believers who were scattered as a result of Stephen's persecution. So if we go back to chapter 7, Acts 11, uh, thousands have given their lives to Christ now. Uh, the church is being born. It's residing within Jerusalem. Things are going great. People are sharing their belongings. Um, everything is going well. Uh, Stephen... Um, is making some wrinkles within uh, the Jewish culture as he preaches to the Jews. And, and essentially, they don't exactly like what's going on, and they don't like all of these people who are converting to Christianity. So they make up some lies about them, just like they did to Jesus. And so they put Stephen on trial, and he stands up and uh, just defends his stance. And he does it by taking the Jews from, hey, from the start to now, you have rejected this God. And it turns out they didn't like that message too much. So they stoned him to death. And those uh, new believers scatter. And again, God uses the ordinary, these ordinary believers, and he sprinkles in some persecution to galvanize their faith and what they believe and why they believe it. And then he sends them off into different cities, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, etc. 
So we pick up here in 11. We see these believers ended up in Antioch. And we're going to start in verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also. Uh, Hellenists were the Greek speakers, uh, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many who were, uh, excuse me, and a great many were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to their ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. I'm going to steal a page out of Brian's book that he used a couple of weeks ago. This passage, uh, there's like 10 sermons that you could preach out of it. Or you could preach on giving. This is a brand new baby church, and they're giving sacrificially of their money because they know that it goes towards the overall mission, right? So there's a sermon on giving. There's a whole sermon on Barnabas and what a rock star of a follower and a disciple of Christ that he was that we could all learn from. Uh, there is a whole sermon on discipleship, that discipleship doesn't um, end at the conversion of an unbeliever becoming a believer. Rather, it continues on. So Paul and Barnabas show up and pour into this new church to ensure that they're healthy and they're rooted in their faith for over a year. They poured into them. Uh, we're going to camp out on the first part, which is the boldness of these believers. Think about this now. These believers... And here is how this supports the idea of God, his system. God uses the ordinary to accomplish the extraordinary. He used these ordinary believers. If you flip back to 8, don't worry about flipping back, I'll do it for you. 8.1 says this, And Saul approved of his execution, speaking of Stephen. So this is right on the heels of Stephen getting... Uh, executed. So Saul approved of his execution, and as a result, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So as a reminder, apostles are those who walked with Jesus while he was alive. They saw Jesus uh, in the flesh, and Paul, because of on the road to Damascus and his encounter uh, with Jesus, was also uh, considered an apostle. So these apostles, think about this, uh, they are preaching to the unbelievers, right? They're preaching some, uh, a body of work, a resume of somebody who they got to walk with him as he was performing miracles and doing all this amazing stuff. So I'm not saying it was easier for them, but I'm kind of saying it was easier for them, right? Because they had all of this information that galvanized them to say, I know that he's the real deal. So I'm willing to sacrifice my life. I'm willing to put it out on the line to tell you I was there and I saw it. But that's not who went to Antioch. Who went to Antioch 
were just some people, or some of them, it says. 11.19, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene. And 8 tells us these weren't the apostles. God uses the ordinary to accomplish the extraordinary. Sometimes I think uh, at this time that these people that they were reaching were like people who knew nothing about God and who had like, you know, dirt floor houses and were just waiting for somebody to come tell them about how they could be saved. Because then, like, wouldn't it be easier to share your faith if you had this little light bulb over, like, you know, a crowd of people like this, and one of you has a light bulb, Kyle. And Kyle has a light bulb over his head, and, it's, and he's like, all right, this guy is going to be receptive to the gospel. So I know that I can communicate with him, and I know that God's been preparing his heart, and I'm not going to face any persecution. Like, I would, I would witness to him all day, every day. The problem is that's not how it works, right? And so I feel like in, in the Bible times that these people like scattered and they were like, all right, who are some safe people that we can witness to? Listen to this quick uh, excerpt from Wearsby's, uh, the Bible exposition commentary about where they landed in Antioch. With a population of a half a million, Antioch ranked as the third largest city in the Roman Empire following Rome and Alexandria. Its magnificent buildings helped give it the name Antioch the Golden, Queen of the East. The main street was more than four miles long, paved with marble, and lined on both sides by marble colonnades. It was the only city in the ancient world at that time that had its streets lighted at night. A busy port and a center for luxury and culture, Antioch attracted all kinds of people, including wealthy retired Roman officials, yada yada. Antioch was a wicked city, perhaps second only to Corinth. Though all the Greek, Roman, and Syrian deities or gods were honored, the local shrine was dedicated to Daphne, whose worship included immoral practices. Antioch was to the Roman world what New York City is to ours, writes James Kelso, and an archaeologist follows the Apostle Paul. Here, where all the gods of antiquity were worshipped, Christ must be exalted. Not only was an effective church built in Antioch, but it became the church that sent Paul out to win the Gentile world for Christ. And oh, by the way, we're Gentiles. So thank you, Antioch. When the persecuted believers arrived in Antioch, they did not at all feel intimidated by the magnificence of the buildings or the pride of the citizens. The word of God was on their lips and the hand of God was on their witness. And a great number of sinners repented and believed. It was a thrilling work of God's wonderful grace. They just saw the price that some people have to pay for sharing their faith in their colleague, their friend, their brother in Christ, Stephen, who literally got stoned to death. He got rocks thrown at him until he died. So they scatter, and instead of kind of hiding out and being like, God, thank you that I have eternal salvation, but I'm, you know, we saw what happens. I'm not going to share it with anybody. They had God on their lips, and the hand of God was on them. And they just preached in a city that was the third largest in the Roman Empire who had other religions. They had their beliefs, so they knew that it was going to be a polarizing topic because you're essentially telling somebody, hey, you know what you believe in this temple that you built? It's all for naught. Let me introduce you to the real God. So they knew that persecution, to the point of death potentially, was a possibility. Why do they still do it? Why did they do it? 
I think it's because they knew that God uses, again, the ordinary to accomplish the extraordinary. They had been in the game. They had seen God at work. They had seen other ordinary folks uh, being used in miraculous ways by the Spirit, and they wanted a part of that because once you're in that game and you're loving others and treating them as you would want to be treated, introducing them to the life-changing Savior that they had grown to know, and then they were filled with those fruits, and once you experience that, the persecution doesn't matter because it's worth it. A quick verse to further kind of support this point, and then we're going to flip to a video real quick. First uh, Corinthians 1, 27 to 31 says this. This is Paul speaking to the church in Corinth. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God designed this system so that it was foolproof. Think about athletes. Like, did athletes, you know, granted, they practice and they may work out, but think about athletes who were given this natural ability. They were given legs that worked and a mind to help them with hand-eye coordination and uh, all just, just this package of gifts. And the vast majority of athletes are patting themselves on the back or banging their chest about how awesome they are in comparison to other athletes, right? God knows what our issues are, and he knows that if it was left up to us to win other people to Christ, if it was on us, that, that we would boast and we would take all the glory, and that glory is not for us. So he creates a system where he's going to use the weak to shame the wise, and he's going to say, look, this story of redemption, right, at the beginning of time, I created us, and you were abiding in me, and sin comes in the world, severs that you are separated from me. It's my story of redemption, my son, whom I send to the earth, die on the cross, take your sin on his shoulders, right? It's my redemption story. And so now I'm going to use you, and you know what? You are weak. Uh, the fears of um, persecution, or in our culture, do we really fear persecution? I think it's more we fear Hey, if I talk to Christ about a family member, or excuse me, if I talk to a family member about Christ, um, it could be a little awkward, right? Next time I see him at Thanksgiving, like, he's going to be like, oh, he's like, it's a little strange. The relationship is strained a bit. Uh, maybe we are afraid of being embarrassed. So if I open my mouth and start sharing Christ with a neighbor, and what if they ask a question that I don't know the answer to? Uh, what if we're uh, afraid of being rejected? Like, I bring it up, and somebody's like, are you serious? After all of these years and after all that science has proven, uh, you still believe in that? You still believe in Christ? Right? Like, uh, that's what we're afraid of? I don't, Nate, what is, what is your fear? What makes you uncomfortable about sharing the gospel with neighbors? Whatever that is, guess what? That makes you normal. That makes you ordinary. And God uses the ordinary. That which you look at as something that's a weakness, 
as Paul says, when I am weak, then I am strong. God uses your ordinariness, that's a word, to accomplish the extraordinary. So quick video to illustrate that, and then we'll, uh, we'll wrap back up. Even myself, like I'm, I'm I, I've been uh, just kind of knocking on doors, you know, in the, the inner city in San Francisco. And man, I'm, I'm scared. Every day I'm scared. And, and yet some things are happening, some supernatural things. And, and there's this one guy, oh, I love him, this guy James. Met him a few months ago. In fact, he just turned 59 last week. And, uh, and, and I, I remember when I found out how old he was, I just, you know, I'm, I'm in his room, you know, he's smoking pot, he's on methadone, he's drinking, you know, Telemundo's going on, he doesn't even speak Spanish, he's just, all this noise is happening in his room, and, and I'm just going, James, man, are you ready to see God? You know, I like you, and, and I'm worried that, and he goes, he goes, oh, I'll be fine, and I'm like, no, there's no way you'll be fine when you see God, and I just started, you know, preaching to him, just, just me and him in his apartment, you know, with a buddy of mine, and I'm just going, man, look at what happened when people saw God. Isaiah was a prophet, and he just freaked out, and go, ah, he's going to kill me, and I'm just screaming, he's going, man, do you see what the angels are doing, and you're going to walk up to him, you know, smoking, you know, and, and God's going to be fine with you, and he just starts freaking out, and I'm going, man, do you want me to pray over you? Do you want Jesus in your life, real thing? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We pray, you know, he's got like goosebumps all over his body. Go, man, what just happened? And, you know, we baptized him a couple of weeks later, and, and we just had a birthday party for him at my house. And, and he's like, man, pray for me. He was just baptized three weeks ago. He goes, pray for me. I, I've never been clean on the first of the month. First of the months, when everyone gets their check and everyone just goes nuts in that area, it's just, he goes, it's been about probably 25 years since I've not been completely bombed on the first day of the month, and, and that's coming in a couple of days. And uh, I said, yeah, definitely. And so I'm thinking last week, first of the month, I'm going to go to James' apartment. I'm going to hang out with him all day. And... Uh, just make sure he doesn't do anything wrong. I'm going to fix this guy. And, uh, and then I get the flu. I'm thinking, oh, man, I can't even get out of bed. I feel terrible. It's the first of the month. Lord, he's going he's gonna to blow it. Um, and one of the volunteers has been working with me, this, this kid named Aaron, goes and visits him. But in my head, I'm thinking, this guy re literally has been addicted for about 40 years. Forty years. You don't send a little Aaron after forty years. <laughs> this guy needs Francis Chan. You know? Aaron. He hasn't even written anything. So you know the so in my head, it's like, ah, oh, man, what's going to happen? You know, again, it's a, it's a flesh. The very thing I confront other people on, I'm thinking, no, i got to be there. We've got to bring me in. I'm going to do something. You know, as though any of us could talk someone into following Jesus and staying clean after 40 years of addiction. I get a call from Aaron. Is that Thursday night? And he's... Francis, I got to tell you what happened. He goes, so I pick James up in the morning, and I go, hey, let me teach you how to 
go to the bank, you know, and, uh, and deposit money or, you know, put it on this little card so you don't just go out and buy drugs all day, you know, and blow it all in a day. And so they went, and he got all his money on this little card, and, and, uh, and James goes, man, I've never done that. And it's been at least 25 years since I've done this. And Aaron's like, let's celebrate. Let's, let's celebrate. You know, let's get in my car. I want to take you out to dinner. You know, so they, they start driving. And, you know, he goes, oh, I know of a good place. I'm going to take you to this, you know, restaurant. And he gets lost. And he's like, oh, man, you know, he's on his iPhone. He goes, ah, forget it. There's Popeye's. Let's go to there. And let's just get some chicken. And, and so they're sitting at Popeye's. And, and Aaron's telling me how excited he goes, man, I'm walking through Romans 8 with them, talking about how he's going to put this thing to, to death now. And we're so excited because, you know, it's first of the month. And, and, and he's been clean. And, uh, and, uh, and Aaron goes, tell me how this started. When did the drug start? And James goes, he goes, I was 19 years old. He goes, 19 years old, exactly 40 years ago. He goes, I was working at a restaurant and my manager brought in cocaine. And he says, you want to just try some? And he goes, man, I'd smoked, you know, I drank, but I just thought, let me try this. He goes, I tried it, and I was hooked. It just got me immediately. I just couldn't get enough. He goes, but I'll never forget just sitting there in that back room. It was this, uh, and he goes, It was in this restaurant. He goes, is this $5.99 to visit there? This used to be, and he named the restaurant. It was in this room. And he just stands up, and he just starts laughing. And he goes, wow, 40 years. I've been in the desert 40 years. And God took me back to the very room where it all started to deliver me. He goes, if I ever question God, I will never question Him again. And right there, they just celebrated and worshipped in the middle of Popeyes. You know? Oh, isn't that the coolest? And I'm on the other line, just, you know, Aaron just going, man, it was like the greatest day of his life. I can't believe I experienced this. And here I was just going, wow, thinking that God would need me, you know, and, uh, and forgetting. And, man, the Lord is after these people. And it's when the everyday person just goes out and takes a step of faith that the supernatural happens. And... I don't know what I was more excited about, uh, James or Aaron, you know? I, just to hear this young guy just beside himself because now he's going, this is all I want to experience. And then visiting James two days ago and him going, Francis, did you hear the story? I go, yeah, I heard the story. He goes, man, I, I got chills right now just thinking about it again. He goes, it's all I can think about. And now it's so cool because his... His salvation doesn't rest on eloquent speech or man's wisdom, but the demonstration of the Spirit's power. And isn't that what we all want?
So think of Aaron. Think of Aaron, the, uh, the volunteer. And think back to Business Insider's 25 companies with the happiest employees. Let's say Aaron's in IT for one of these companies. Is he looking for purpose and fulfillment at work now when he goes back to work on Monday? After experiencing God at work and how he, ordinary Aaron, got to play a role in that and see extraordinary God put all these circumstances together and radically change somebody's life. And this God allows us as ordinary people with all the fears and all the hesitations and all the anxieties about, oh, if I make this situation awkward, like imagine Aaron, probably this young guy, taking this guy who's been addicted to drugs for 40 years out on a Saturday, last minute. It's not like he's been able to prepare for it for, you know, what if you ask this, this, or this? Okay, I'll prepare for it. Like Francis Chan was supposed to take him. So probably at last minute, last minute notice, hey, Aaron, can you go? And he's like probably feeling the same anxiety, the same what. It's a beautiful picture of how God uses the ordinary to accomplish the extraordinary. Get in the game because it's God's game. And all of your weaknesses are there by design. The boldness of just getting in the game and taking a step of faith and saying, look, God's at work. God is at work in your life, and I don't even know how. But I can tell you how he's been at work in my life. I can... So Josh preaches next week, and every time we preach, we both boohoo. So I don't know what, what it is about you and I, Josh, but I'm not going to cry. Um, God's at work, and we somehow, by God's grace, not only get to be saved by his grace for eternity, but this system of abiding in him and keeping his commandments of just loving others as we would want to be loved, Right? And I don't know the answers, but I'm bold enough to step out and say that I don't know the answers, but God has changed me, and I want to introduce him to you. And then to be able to know at the end of the day that God has been glorified by my actions. Ultimately, the end result on what this person's decision is is on the Lord because he's accomplishing the extraordinary, not me. And I get to have that peace that surpasses all understanding, the joy uh, that is just filled to the brim that Jesus talks about. I love it, and I have no application for you. I think this message, um, I hope, serves as an encouragement and as a reminder of how God has designed the system, and it serves to embolden you in whatever applicable way that looks like for you. Whoever God puts on your heart, whatever that means, if you send an email, you send a letter, you knock on their door, you bake them cookies, you take them out the den, I don't know. That's the beauty of it, because you know the only way you answer that question is you go to the Lord and say, you're accomplishing something extraordinary in this person's life. Can I play a part? And if so, what does that look like? Uh, I'm willing. So, with that said, I'm going to close this in prayer and, and uh, with that in mind. God, you are... too gracious to include us in your plan of redemption and in the lives that you are changing, uh, not to mention our own. Uh, we get to be involved in that and changed for the better ourselves as we grow to know you and become closer to you in the process. It's a brilliant design that literally no one but you could have thought up, and we simply praise you for it.
And we ask for boldness uh, and willingness uh, to, to simply say yes. We love you, Father. Amen.